0: Let's bow again. Father, again, we are just so thankful for this morning, thankful for this opportunity to praise you, to worship you, to sing about your son Jesus, and um, thank you. And Father, I pray as we look into your word now, you would enlighten our hearts, help us to understand uh, the vast depth of this truth that we would be encouraged And we would be built up, and those who don't know you would be saved. So we thank you for this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking, uh, or we looked at last week in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, a passage concerning uh, the truth that uh, God the Son uh, took on human flesh to taste death for everyone, that he he died for our sins. And today, on Christmas morning, I wanted to continue our look in the book of Hebrews. And so if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at, the, at verses 14 to 18, a portion that connects to what we saw last week that will give us great insight also into another aspect of why Jesus needed to take on human flesh, why he needed to die for our sins, and also how this helps us right now. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Now, uh, we know that this book is, the author is unknown, written sometime after Jesus ascended and sometime before Jerusalem was destroyed. We know it wasn't written to prove that Judaism was better than Christianity, it was written to prove that Christ and his new covenant was superior to the old covenant, which was a type and shadow of that which was to come. And this entire word of exhortation, as the author would say in chapter 13, uh, has a Christ focus with exhortations and warnings threaded throughout the book for those who identified with the body of Christ, but yet had not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And these Jews were about to go back to Judaism and leave the only thing that could save them, which is Jesus Christ, the only person who could save them. And so there are warnings not to slip. Now, in the first three verses of this book, we have the theme of this book that Christ uh, that God has given us a superior revelation through his son, Jesus Christ, which surpasses all previous revelation. Uh, the son is the heir, the creator of all things. He perfectly represents the father, and he is in a position of authority, having a completed the redemptive work for us on our behalf. And God had, though he had previously spoken through prophets bit by bit and through the fathers bit by bit and... and, and uh, And uh, in various ways, he now has spoken to us through his son, through his son. And so with that, we have uh, this exhortation to listen to him. At the very end of the book or close to the end before the last final exhortations, we have in chapter 12, 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse the Lord Jesus. He is speaking through his word to us. And in this book, we have this proving of Christ as superior, uh, first of all, to angels, the messengers of the Old Covenant, then to Moses, the apostle of the Old Covenant, and then he is superior to the priestly, tabernacle, sacrificial system, which was a shadow of what Christ would do for us. And then in chapter 11, we have the lifestyle of old covenant saints which a new covenant lifestyle exhibited by old covenant saints it's by faith and that faith would produce endurance and then in chapter 12 we are encouraged to endure since we have so great a cloud of testifiers to the fact that the race can be run and endured through and won in that sense through faith in jesus christ therefore we should fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of faith And so we come to our passage today, and uh, we're going to see very clearly uh, why Jesus, being God, took on human flesh. Now again, a little of the context, Uh, the author has made it clear that God speaks through his Son, and in chapter 1 he has proved that Christ is superior to angels. Look at chapter 1, verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins uh, and his minister is a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, "Thy throne, O God." You see, God, the Son is is God. Jesus is God, is forever and ever. And thy righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. The reality is that since He is God, uh, we better listen to Him, and that's the first warning in chapter two. Is if if what he shared through angels was not alterable, that you better follow that, you better listen to God's word, how much more if we reject so great a salvation uh, that was presented to these Jews here and is presented to us? And then we came to a portion where we saw last week that uh, the author focused on his humanity, that he was made for a little while lower than angels, but yet he was crowned uh, with glory, for suffering death for us, tasting death, suffering for us. And then we come to our passage today, this Christmas morning, verse 14. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself also likewise partook of the same. Now here, the first thing we have here is the fact that since the children share in flesh and blood, or literally blood and flesh, Well, who are these children he's speaking of? He's talking about little children? Who is he talking about? Well, if you go back, we see what we saw last week. Look at verse 6 in chapter 2. But one has testified somewhere, what is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things into subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, that's speaking of mankind... He says here, He has left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to Him. You see, because of sin, the creation is flawed, the creation is cursed. We have also, we have the reality that because of sin, man is not reigning over God's creation as he is supposed to be. So we don't see man reigning right now, but we do see, verse 9, Him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering and death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death that means to bring it to its fullest taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him and whom are all things for for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect or to complete the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For this reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praises, and again I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. The children are believers. The children and then but we're going to see children also are those are hum, are, are mankind. It's human flesh, but it's going to see that specifically is those later on who Christ has saved. So he says here since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also or likewise also partook of the same. Partook of the same. Now if you have a New King James, it's kind of interesting, they've kind of they've kind of flipped things around. You have these words. Um, that share and partake. You have since the children share and then uh, he likewise partook. Well, it's backwards in the New King James. They flip it around. But I think that does a disservice to this and I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. Because this idea of share, first of all, speaks of having something in common. First of all, because... Uh, there's a commonality because uh, we share in flesh and blood, he partook. Now that's a different word and it's, it's translated share. The New Kings, it should be translated partook. It speaks of taking on something that is not naturally yours. So because we all share koinonia of flesh and blood, he took on something that was not naturally his, he partook of human flesh. And so then, since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise also partook the same. He met echo, he partook, he participated. And that word, word also speaks of always sharing in that participation with those in whom you participate with, sharing in the results of that. What we see here is that God took on human flesh because we are human flesh. We are by nature human, and God, who is not by nature human, took on a human nature, as we'll see for us. We see that, and I read this passage earlier, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that had not or had come into being. And then chapter 1 of, first of John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh. God took on human flesh. Uh, Paul shares to the Philippians that we are to have the mind of Christ. We're to have this mindset or attitude. We're to think this way. We're to think like Jesus. And then he explains the great reality of the mindset of Christ behind the incarnation. Philippians chapter 2 have this attitude, verse 5, which in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that could be literally mind. Although he existed in the form of God, did not require equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became a man. He took on human flesh. He took on human flesh, born of a woman. He took on human flesh. Uh, Tremendous reality, tremendous reality. We saw it back in Hebrews 2.9. Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than angels. Angels. Now, before the incarnation, before him taking on flesh, uh, Jesus, or, or God the Son, fully God and expressed it, fully God and expressed it. But during the Incarnation, although he was fully God, he became fully man. But he didn't become a new person. This Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. He just took on humanity because we have, we are humanity. We have flesh and blood. So he partook of that which was not his nature for our benefit, as we will see. God took on human. Flesh. It says, likewise, in the same way, in the same manner. How's, how did how did we become flesh? We were born, right? We were born of a woman. Jesus Christ was born of a woman. We have him taken on in the same manner. Likewise, likewise. And certainly I read this earlier in Luke chapter 2, but we see it came about that while they were there, this is Joseph and, and, and Mary, they were in, they were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth, this is Luke chapter 2, and she gave, she gave birth to her firstborn son. Uh, God brought forth his son through a virgin, uh, through this uh, uh, divine conception, uh, and we have uh, the son of God taking on human flesh, human flesh. So then, since then the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And then notice this. This is really important. The author wants to tell us a purpose, or actually two purposes, why he took on human flesh. We have this, that, he says here, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You have it in Greek, it's really in order that, and then a subjunctive, which makes a purpose clause. In order that he might, not that it's a possibility, he did do it. It's a purpose clause. In order that he might do this and do this. These are the purposes for why he became like us. And the first one he wants to share with us here is that he might render powerless uh, through his death, uh, him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That is the devil. So then, Jesus Christ came to die, that through death, through death. Here we have it, in order that through death. And so many scriptures reveal this, that God the Son came to die for our sins. He came to die for our sins. We have it throughout the word of God. We know the grace of God is appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But we know that salvation came through his death. The Lord Jesus would say, "Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave, just as the Son of Man." Matthew twenty-eight, twenty, Matthew twenty, twenty-eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give, to serve and give His life a ransom for many. In Luke chapter, uh, and in Luke thirteen, tells uh, the Lord Jesus shares the third time that He's got to go to the cross and die. Actually, Luke eighteen. 1831, he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him and the third on the third day he will rise again. And we know from Acts 2:23 that it was always his plan. We have the statement from Peter, "This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking of Jews, nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, that would be the Romans, and put him to death." Now we see back earlier in Hebrews chapter um, two, verse nine, that suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. He came to die for us, as we'll see. He came, as we'll see, to die in our place. But there's a purpose in that dying in our place. There's a purpose, because ever since Adam, as we will see, sin has entered into the world, and sin is in the world, and death, and sin and death reign. It reigns in humanity, and God is a gracious God. And notice what he did for us, that through death, he might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus came to die, first of all, to render powerless the devil. Now, who's the devil? Who's the devil? Well, you might remember from Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, we see that God created him. He was the covering cherub. He was beautiful. He was perfect. He was created blameless. But yet, because of his great pride, he sinned and he was cast out of heaven. And indeed, in Romans chapter 12, we see uh, it gives us some insight into his fall and his nature. We know that when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him. And then look at Revelation chapter 12. We see uh, his nature and what he does. We see him actually using death at this point to reign, in a sense, or attempting to. Revelation 12, verse 9 And the great dragon was thrown down. Now this is in the. Now don't get it mixed up. This isn't in the beginning. This is in the middle of the tribulation. If you want to study Revelation, we can go through that. We've gone through that. It's in the middle of tribulation. He is thrown down. The serpent of all, who is called the devil and Satan, who what deceives the whole world. That's everybody. The whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Hallelujah! Right. Uh, And I heard, because remember in Job, Satan had access to heaven. Even though he's cast down to earth for all to see how wicked he is, he had access, right? But here he's finally thrown down. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the what accuser of our brethren has been thrown down? Who accuses them before our God day and night? And guess what? When he gets thrown down, all of heaven will be there at this time. If you're a believer, was rejoicing, saying, "Praise the Lord! He has been thrown down." One who accuses day and night, and they overcame because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of the testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. Well, we know from John chapter 8:44 that the devil is a murderer and he is a liar. That is his nature. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him whenever he speaks. John 8:44, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a murderer and the liar, father of lies. But yet we know also from Second Corinthians 11, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself. We see that in second Corinthians 11. But we are not to, as believers, be ignorant of his schemes. We see this in Second Corinthians also, that he uses unforgiveness and he uses sin, whether it's anger, whatever it might be, to get a place in us. But we're not to be ignorant of those schemes. So here, now from our passage, we see the devil uses sin and its result, death, as a tool to exercise dominion over mankind. Look at this, back in our passage, verse 14. Since then, the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, or literally blood and flesh, he himself, that's speaking of Jesus, likewise, in the same manner, and that's what it means, also partook, that means to take on something that's not naturally yours, right, but to, to share in it, um, the same that, here we go, through death, it's his death on the cross, by the way, he went to the cross and died for our sins and paid the sin, our sin debt, he might render powerless him or the power of death. That is the devil. And so how is this that the devil has the power of death? And that even leads us to the question, what is death? I mean, these days our society is rearranging, rewriting, uh, uh, redefining words every day. But what is death? What is death? Death is simply separation in its its very simplest form. But it is an awful concept, yet simple. It's separation. Physical death, separation of the body from the spirit body from the spirit spiritual death separation from god eternal death of the second death separation from god in punishment forever it is the lack of life no god no life you know when people come they see if someone is alive they don't check to see if they're dead they check to see if there's signs of life if there's no life they are dead no life you are dead if you are separated from the life of god because of sin you are dead in your trespasses and sins And if you die in your sins, you will experience the second death punishment uh, apart from God in the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, by the way. In Genesis chapter 3, we know, or we know actually earlier, that God made it clear to Adam that if he disobeyed the word of God, he would surely die. And when Adam rebelled in Genesis 3, he experienced the spiritual death first, separation from God. And we'll see the consequences in a minute, because that's part of what Satan uses, by the way, to reign over man, okay? We'll see that, and that God broke through sending his son. He ultimately experienced spir- spiritual at first, but then he experienced physical death, ultimately. Adam did. Through one man, Romans 5:12, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we were made sinners because of Adam, but we voted it in with our own actions. We all sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is disobedience to God's revealed word. It is the cause of death. It is the cause of death. Physical death is ultimately related to the fall of man. That fall brought about spiritual and eternal death, separation from God because of sin. So how does Satan have the kratos, the hold, or the dominion or power of death? How does he have so? How does he have it? Well, devil, the devil, he is, uh, he is crafty, we know, in an, in an evil manner. Uh, we know that he understands that God requires death for sin. He understands that. He knows that all in Adam died, that death entered in as a principle, and he wants to hold men in sin, and its result, spiritual death, until they die, because once physically dead, man cannot escape God's righteous judgment, subsequently the second death, eternal death. Now this word power here, kratos, means power in the sense of dominion. Satan has dominion over the human race in the form of death in the form of death. In essence, the devil uses God's righteous judgment against us because of sin. Thus, thus death is his tool. It is his dominion. But what God did through sending his son Jesus was that through Jesus' death, bearing our sins, taking care of the sin problem, he would render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, now, the term render powerless, and the New King James says destroy. I don't, the New King James really messed up on this one, okay? But uh, uh, they have some notes, but they miss it here. The term render powerless doesn't mean to destroy. It means to make impotent. It's literally what it means. It literally means to, be, to make useless. So he's there. He's not destroyed. His power, in a sense, is destroyed, but he's, but he's useless in it. He's useless. He's impotent. He is inoperative, his power in that sense. So here we have the concept of his power being rendered powerless or inoperative in relation to his dominion over death. Christ's death rendered Satan impotent and powerless concerning his dominion of death for those who believe in Jesus Christ, for those who are set free through the blood, for those who have uh, been saved. 1 John 3, verse 8, in the second half, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Maybe that's why they rendered it destroy there, but here it's made impotent, made impotent. So then we have a toothless lion. Uh, His dominion has been shattered. Uh, Since Christ conquered death, Satan could no longer use it as his tool, and thus his dominion has been shattered. You see, Scripture reveals that Jesus abolished death and brought life to light and eternity to light. Second Timothy chapter one, let's turn to Second Timothy one. Paul is trying to encourage a young disciple Timothy, who's a pastor who has a tendency to be timid, and uh, he's going to encourage him, saying, "Hey, Timothy, that's not from God, but God has given us something else." Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. That's from God. Don't ever get confused. When you think of what's what's from God and what isn't. Go to the Word of God. It tells you exactly what is and what isn't. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me as prisoner. Speak, Paul speaking to Timothy, but join me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not only to, not only according not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who what? Abolished death. Isn't that great? And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He has abolished death. We see in Acts chapter 2, he put an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Christ, for him to be held in its power. Jesus would say in John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. You say, wait a second, I believers, I know that are physically dead. Well, no, yes, they died physically, but they have been restored spiritually and they go right into the presence of the Lord. Tremendous, wonderful reality. He also makes it clear that those who hear his word believe in him who sent him, have eternal life, and he do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. Into life. One pastor writes, Behind death the writer sees the power of Satan who uses God's righteous judgment against sin to bring death to human beings because because all human beings sin. But when God's Son willingly entered into the dread realm of death on behalf of of the race, he could not be held there because he was sinless. And by his resurrection, he broke the power of death over all who would accept his invitation to share his risen life through faith in him. Praise the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 53, for this perishable, that's speaking of our bodies that are, that are, that are, that are set to, to, to die, that are, that are decaying and dying, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, per- perishable put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, that's when, when we're in glory, by the way, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death. Victory over death and Satan. We see that He, Jesus smashed the devil's dominion, dominion of death. He smashed it and when he died for our sins and rose from the dead. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus Christ says he has the keys to death in Hades. He smashed Satan's dominion. Well, if you are still haven't come to Christ, you are actually spiritually dead. And there are some evidences of that. You're a slave to your own desires. But God is a gracious God. He's a good God. He abolished death by bringing life. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will experience eternal life, eternal life. So Christmas, in one sense, is about the death of death. It's about the dominion of death and the defeat of Satan, uh, defeated because Christ died for our sins. Tremendous. Now notice, continuing back in our passage, continuing. So then, notice back in our passage, there's two things, okay? Now, this one gets kind of tricky, and it was hard. I was studying. I'm like, oh, boy, Lord, I don't understand. Please help me. And, I always, and by the way, do that, please, when you study. Lord, help me. Help me understand. Help me understand what you intended. Um, so here, first of all, he partook of the same that through death he might render powerless, right? Satan had the power of death. But notice there's another thing, and might, another thing, and might deliver those through who, through, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives, okay, very interesting. The second thing is that through through death he might uh, he might secondly deliver those who were subject to slavery through the fear of death. You go, okay, well, the word delivered here, apoluso means to set free to liberate you know if you were in a prison camp and the the soldiers came and set you free, you were apoluso, you were liberated. You were set free from your bondage. And so here, Jesus, that through his death, might deliver, liberate, release. Who? Who? Notice he says here, who, end of 15, through the fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, what is he talking about? The term subject to slavery is a continual habitual action, started the past, it still continues. The term subject needs to be held in tight control. You could translate it this way, that through death he might liberate those who through fear of death, all their lives are continually being held in tight control and bondage. Okay? Now, when I get to the side of fear of death, I I, I have trouble with this. Because not everybody fears death, let's be honest. It, it, It makes it sound like that only the people that fear death are in bondage. Well, is that really what it means? You know, Satan is a great deceiver. There's a lot of people who don't fear death. And they cruise right into that shocking moment uh, of reality when they've rejected Christ and then they stand before him, some even thinking that they're fine. Did we not do this? Did we not do this? Depart from me, I never knew you. They didn't fear death. But here, what does that mean? And I was looking at this because here it's talking about everyone being under tight control. But not everyone fears physical death per se. What does he mean by that? I think the answer comes in the grammar here. And this is what I'm just praying about. The term fear of death is an a genitive. It could mean death's fear. You know, car of Greg, Greg's car. You see, it's an a genitive, it's in a possessive. And it most likely could be, certainly people fear death. Not saying we don't. But does everyone fear death? I don't know about that. I don't think people are held in bondage all their life because they're fearing death every day. I think they're in bondage, as we'll see, because of sin. Because of sin, okay? So death's fear. So what does it mean? Death's fear tightly holds people in slavery. How does death's fear tightly hold us? Remember back in Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, they were dead in their sins. And what was the initial con- consequence? One of it was fear. Remember Adam? You know, the Lord is calling for him, Adam, you know. Uh, and he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That's death's fear. That's the control of fear uh, and that death brought about, as we see. And when did that come in? Uh, we've all experienced that, uh, that fear and that, that associated, the smell of death, shame uh, and its self-effort to rid the shame, to cover up, a uh, guilt with fear and flight, trying to run away, uh, staying awake. The world doesn't want any part of God. The world is hiding from him and their sins. They don't want, and they're in bondage continually, habitually, because of, I believe, death's fear. Instead of confession, there is blame and cover-up arising from sin. But Jesus broke the bondage of what sin and death brought forth. You see, we are subject to slavery all our lives because of sin. When we are sin, Jesus said, you become a slave to sin. If you sin, you become a slave. Let me share some verses from Romans chapter 5. You can turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered to the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans five seventeen. for if by the transgression of one, that's Adam, death reigned. It reigned. It was sovereign. It had dominion. What is Satan? He has dominion over death, doesn't he? Death had dominion. Reigned through the one. Um, verse 18, so then as through one transgression result the condemnation to all men. Verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 621, a little farther up. Therefore, what benefit are you deriving through the things which you are now ashamed? We're, we're ashamed of our actions when we were, when we were uh, not saved, those actions. We're ashamed of those things. It says, so, for what uh, is outcome of these things? For the outcome of these things is what? Death. Death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. He'll say in chapter 8 of Romans verse 6, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the spirit is life and peace. You see, because of sin, we live in the context of death's fear. We are in bondage because of sin. It says here, all their lives through the fear of death, or death's fear, all, are, all their lives were continually being held in tight control and bondage. Now, certainly on a physical level, this is true too. I mean, if you're fearing death, you're in, you're in control your whole life. That's true. But I think it has more to do with sin and death. Some of you are enslaved. You're enslaved to your sin, there's a lack of, uh, of joy, there's a lack of peace, there's no rest, there's no contentment, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's fear. You're enslaved, and you try to do everything to fill the void. And the, dev- the devil has his anesthesia, sex, alcohol, drugs, man made religion, whatever it might be. He's got that for you. And if you are spiritually dead, there is an absence of life, the life of Christ like a peace and joy and contentment. And you are, as Jesus would say, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. You are held tightly by the cords of your own sin. And Satan has you thus within his dominion because he has the reign of sin and death. He uses death at his tool. But Christ, through his death, broke the reign of Satan. And he has released those who were captive to our sins. Praise the Lord. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you have been released as a prisoner, released from bondage, from sin. So don't be going on saying, oh, I can't help this. No, Jesus released you and trust him. We're going to see in a minute his death also brought about his aid for us right now. Praise the Lord. So then notice that we have Jesus not only came to die to set us free. Uh, from our bondage of sin. He not only came to die to re- release us from the dominion of Satan and death. He also came to help us now. Isn't this great? Look at our passage, verse 16. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the son of Abraham. The term he gives help is a great help. Uh, he gives a great help, a great word. It's great help too. <laughs> it means taking firm hold to see someone in order to help them. You know, when you need help and someone grabs you and helps you, right? That's what he did, He's and we're doing that. For assuredly, he does not give help or cease to help angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That would be the spiritual children of Abraham, by the way. You see, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are Abraham's offspring according to the error of the promise. We're not Jews, but we're offspring by faith. We are in the family of God. Through Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. Praise the Lord. And so here, it says here in this comparison, remember this is about, hey, Christ is way greater than angels. But there's a little diversion here that comes to bless us, right? He gives help to who? Not angels, but to the seed of Abraham. That's those It is Christ who helps those of faith, those whom he delivered from death, those who have been delivered from their sins. He doesn't help those that are in bondage to their sins. They need him to be saved and released from their sins first. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the sins of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. How does he give us help now? He had to be made like us. He had to take on human flesh, as we will see. He had to experience temptation in humanity, yet without sin, to give us help now. To give us help now, tremendous. Therefore, he had to be made. And it's interesting that the word may, "had to" is, is 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 really in the Greek an obligation. It's a debt. He had to do so. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Well, we know. Yet he was not. With, he didn't sin, right? So what's he talking about? Well, Hebrews 4.14, 4, actually take a look at four 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Tremendous. What does this mean? Um, he was made like his brethren, it says here, in every way, in a sense, in all things. You could deliver say, in every way, yet without sin. He grew up. He learned obedience. He was tempted by Satan. He went hungry. He had no place to lay his head. He grew weary. He was sore. He was lied to. He was falsely accused. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, yet we did not esteem him. He was betrayed, he was beaten, he was reviled, he was crucified. Jesus experienced the temptation and the effect of sinful humanity to the max. When you say no one understands, when you start giving excuses for your sin, get back in the word of God and look to Jesus. Because he came to help you, and he came to help me. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. That's you and I through faith in Jesus to help us. Notice what it says here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, verse 17, and all things, that he might become a merciful. That's a great word, isn't it? You know, mercy is is help for the helpless. You know, he doesn't come back and yell at us because we're coming to him for help. With our with sin or whatever it might be to help to to, to escape it to not fall to temptation, he's merciful and a faithful high priest. is going to do what he says. Pertain things pertain to God to make propitiation of the sins for the people. You see, he came and died in our place, and through that he is able thus to come to our aid. To come to our aid. You say no one understands. You say. Uh, There's nowhere to go. Well, we know that Jesus understands. Hebrews 7.25, Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our God lives to make intercession. And then notice, he died for our sins. He died for our sins. To make, end of 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means to make satisfaction. That's where propitiation has the sense of mercy in it too. To satisfy God, but in a merciful way. He died for us. Tremendous. Tremendous. You see, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the whole world. First John 2, 2. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. First John 4.10. Don't forget he died for your sins, and he lives now intercedes for you. Go to him. Go to Jesus. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful, who will provide a way of escape that you will endure it. Turn to Jesus. He's not going to put you down, he's going to help you. He grasps on and gives help. He gives help. He gives help. Notice uh, verse eighteen for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he took on human flesh to render impotent Satan, his power of death. He took on human flesh to die for our sins, to pay the price. He took on human flesh to come to our aid, to come to our aid. He took on human flesh to set those captives free from sin. So when you think of Christmas, do you think of the God who will firmly come and grasp you if you go to him. Do you think of that? That he died to become, he became a merciful, faithful high priest? I hope you do. I hope you do. The term come to aid here, uh, Theo speaks of running to the aid of one who cries for help. Isn't that great? It speaks of rescue. You know, when you see people who are like someone slips in the, and, they, and they, someone doesn't see them, and then they cry, hey, help, help. They run over there, right? They don't go, okay, all right. They run over there to help them. That's what he does to us. He does for us. What a great God we have, who was obligated to be made like us, who became like us, yet without sin, who came to die, delivering us from Satan and the grasp of sin And he now ever lives to intercede for us and will rescue us when we cry for help from temptation. Don't give excuses. Cry to Jesus. Cry to Jesus. So why Christmas? Simply put, Jesus came to die for our sins. And if you're a believer, he now lives in you. And he lives his life through you. He rendered Satan powerless, abolishing death. And he brought life and help to us now and intercedes for us, and that ought to bring you great joy. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you so much, and Lord, forgive us for so often not crying out for help, for not knowing and trusting that he will come to our aid. Lord, thank you for your son who died for our sins and now lives and intercedes for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.